Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tours. We have our fair share of bizarre rulers in the 21st century, but the subject of today's episode makes Putin, Trump and Kim Jong-il seem rather tame. According to the academic and novelist Harry Sidebottom, our time travel guide this week, the Roman emperor Heliogabalus was the maddest and baddest of them all. He turned Rome upside down as he rampaged over political and religious traditions during his lust-fueled four-year reign, contributing to the instability and chaos of the later 3rd century AD. In this special end-of-year episode, we get into the spirit of Heliogabalus by allowing Harry Sidebottom to trample on our own tradition of choosing just one year in history to travel back to. Today, we will visit three separate years, 218, 220 and 222 AD, so we can hear the full extraordinary story he tells in his new book, The Mad Emperor. Dr. Harry Sidebottom teaches ancient history at Lincoln College, Oxford. He has written and published a novel each year, all of which have been Sunday Times top five bestsellers. Harry is also the editor of the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Ancient Battles. Hello, Harry, and welcome to Travel Through Time. Hi, thank you for asking me onto the show. It's a pleasure. We are going to be talking about Heliogabalus today, who was this absolutely extraordinary character, uh, an emperor in ancient Rome, who has been sort of almost written out of history uh, for various reasons, which I'm sure we're going to get into a bit later. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, because you actually have two books out at the moment, I believe, and you have um, a career uh, teaching history at Oxford University, but you are also the author of many very, very successful novels, which are also set in ancient Rome. So can you tell us a bit about that side of your life before we get into your year? Happily, as you say, I write historical novels set so far in the Roman Empire. I've published 14 and the latest one called Falling Sky is just published. I've always been fascinated by the interplay between, as it were, non-fiction history and historical fiction. And in fact, I always actually wanted to be a historical novelist, not an Oxford Don. I got a job as an Oxford Don under the misapprehension. Well, you've written a lot of novels, so you must have managed to squeeze it in somehow. <laughs> um, I've squeezed it in somehow, and my Oxford colleague, Lincoln, has been very good about granting me a certain amount of leave to write the novels, because I think Oxford do see it as a form of outreach, a way of reaching readers who don't read history books. But hopefully when they've read one of my novels, they might then go to the back where I have further reading and actually pick up uh, either one of the original sources or a modern history book. And I found the two, being historical novelist and historian, very they actually sort of feed off each other. And I, I thought I was a pretty good historian, um, until I started writing historical novels, and it just made me realise there are massive areas of the Roman Empire and the ancient world I knew nothing about, and um, food, clothes, um, various philosophies. And I had to, to create a whole world, which you have to do in a novel. You have to, you have to really expand your historical horizons. And have you enjoyed doing that? Has that? Do you feel that that's helped your teaching? I think it has, to a very large extent. I think the only downside is that my teaching often, if I have clever undergraduates in front of me, they can manoeuvre me into talking about my novels and not the essay they've just done. That's interesting, though, isn't it? That the idea that when you're writing academic history, you're very, very focused on detail and specific events, moments in time, people, whatever it is, where when you're writing a novel, you have to at least have an awareness of the whole world that you're writing about. So a lot of it might not actually make make it onto the page, but when you're describing a scene, say a dinner party, as you say, you need to have an idea of what they would have eaten and what they would have been sitting on, what they would have been wearing. So in a way, I, I suppose the research is more wide ranging for a novel. Would you say that? I would very much so. Although I think there's a sort of modern misapprehension that, 
writing non-fiction history and historical fiction are very, very different. I found they're actually, in some ways, remarkably the same. You, you pick what you're going to do research on, and then you decide what you'll read, what you'll look at, where you'll go. You take lots of notes, and then you try and tell a story. And you are arranging those notes in a certain pattern to try and take the reader with you. And of course, there are differences. I mean, I don't invent dialogue in um, straight history books, which, which you have to well, enjoy doing in a novel. But I don't think they're diametric opposites. I mean, I think a good historical novel should be as well researched as a good non-fiction history book. Yeah, absolutely. And you might well, if you are doing academic research, you might well try and imagine how a conversation went if you're trying to make sense of and I think it's the role of the imagination that's actually really important. And something that maybe acad straight academic historians don't always acknowledge is how much they have to use their imagination. That's what you have to do, isn't it? To bridge the gap between the past and now. Oh, absolutely. And I think too, too often, modern historians, we get sort of sucked into a way of writing history that's magisterial and omniscient as if we know everything. And... We don't, and we, we're not writing in a vacuum. I mean, we have personalities. We come from a certain time and place and culture, which is obviously going to influence the way we write. And in my book on Heliogabalus, The Mad Emperor, um, I actually break the frame now and then and actually talk directly to the reader and try and explain why I've reached this conclusion and why it might be influenced by, well, my own life, the people I know, the stuff I've read and seen. I think it's important... important bit of intellectual honesty that we have to be open about the fact we're making, not making it up, but we're using our imagination to fill in the gaps. What anthropologists like Clifford Gertz call thick description. Mm. I think it's important. I like the way you do that in your book. It, it, I think it gave it a real immediacy. And of course, when you, when you were considering the sources that we have left on Heliogabalus, uh, the historians, if we take them first. Um, do you think Roman historians, what do you think their priorities were when they were writing their histories? Because that is a big problem, isn't it? When you're using them as your main sources for what actually happened and you have to take into account the, the level of veracity that they were writing with, you know, was truth a priority or was just telling a good story? Were they, in a way, novelists rather than writing academic non-fiction history because that's that didn't exist in those days in the same way that it does now the divisions did they well, i think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there that an ancient historian well we have three main sources um which i love to talk about in a moment for heliogabalus two greek historians cassius dio and herodian and a very very strange set of late latin biographies which we know as the augustan history but these people were not writing even trying to write like a modern historian, their, their working methods are much closer to those of a historical novelist. So they, they tend to be working to both to entertain, to create a literary reputation for themselves. They're quite often making political points, sometimes philosophical points, but they're working to a framework of true enough in that they're happy to omit or even to alter or even invent things that fit the general message they're getting over in a way a modern historical novelist can but a modern historian really can't so i think it's a very good point they they you can't take them on trust but that is one of the major interesting things of doing ancient history is actually sort of digging down into the sources and trying to read them with an open mind and work out their agendas why they're writing the things they write and do they ever are they ever explicit about that do they ever sort of break the fourth wall and say, well, I'm not quite sure if this is true, but I heard this story or, or not? They sometimes do. I mean, of course, Herodotus, the father of history, very much did, famously did, um, said something on the lines of, I'm just recording these stories. I can't be held responsible for whether they're true or not. By the time that um, Heliogabalus is on the throne and people are writing about him in the third century AD, less so. They do occasionally go, it was a rumour. It was said. People thought that. And they're clearly distancing themselves from the veracity of what they're recording then. But then you, you need to work out why they're recording it at all. And usually there is a literary reason beyond just mere entertainment. 
yeah, well, often uh, for some kind of bias, they were they were, you know, supporting a certain political agenda or point of view, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, Cassius Dio, our main source for Heliogabalus, was a Greek. He was also a Roman senator. Very, uh, he's twice consul, incredibly successful man. We know he served on the council of at least two emperors. He's writing after the reign of Heliogabalus, and he's very much had been very implicated in that reign. So he's writing from an agenda to distance himself as far as possible from everything, every bad thing that happened in that reign. So there's a very, really good example of a man who's writing with a very strict agenda, which is to free himself from blame. A very personal agenda, yeah. One of the reasons that we know so little about Heliogabalus is because, as we will discover, his reign was pretty extraordinary and his behaviour was apparently, I have to put in that disclaimer, pretty extraordinary. Uh, and after he died, he was, I can't remember the Latin phrase, condemnatio. So he, his reputation was condemned. Can you talk about that? Explain what that meant. Yes, I can. Um, it's damnatio memoriae, which actually is a modern expression, a bit of Latin. Condemnation of an emperor's memory, or indeed any high-ranking person who's been convicted of treason, were, they were meant to be wiped off like um, a Stalinist purge. They no longer existed. They meant to be airbrushed out of history. Their names would be chiselled off inscriptions. Their statues would be either hauled down or defaced. Um, it never worked. This was the strange thing. It never worked because by chiselling a name off an inscription, you almost draw attention to the missing name. And by leaving statues up with a, a, you know, the ears and eyes and nose chiselled away, it, it, it draw, draws the eye and drew the eye to them. And the interesting thing was that after they'd suffered the damnation of memory, that didn't apply to writers. Writers still wrote about them. Now and then they put in a disclaimer on the lines of the man I'm writing about is so awful, I shouldn't be writing about him. But then with the morality of a tabloid journalist, they went on to record <laughs> every salacious and awful thing they could. It, it's a very interesting, and it has modern parallels, this sort of the toppling of statues and things. Um, and in the Roman experience, it really doesn't work. It actually draws attention to people who are meant to be being forgotten. And so... He wasn't forgotten. And can you tell us a little bit about what we do know about him and how much we can trust what we do know? Right. He's a 14-year-old Syrian boy. And in AD 218, his grandmother, who is a terrifying woman called Julia Miser, organises a revolt which puts him on the throne. And she was probably hoping for a nice, docile, compliant puppet ruler, a boy she could rule through. Unfortunately, she got Heliogabalus, who is, I think, without doubt, the strangest emperor that ever was emperor of Rome. He does almost everything he can, seemingly, to annoy every major group in Roman society. And um, one of the surprising things about him is that he manages to last four years before he's killed. The contemporary Cassius Dio later wrote, apart from the fact the emperor was mad, he said it was as if the world had been turned upside down. Wow by a 14-year-old boy. How normal was it to be in a position of such extraordinary power at such a young age? That can't have been that normal, can it? No, it was very abnormal. I mean, the Romans the Romans didn't have a concept of adolescence, and 14 was the standard age to take the toga virilis and graduate, as it were, from the status of a child to the status of a man. But no, 14-year-old boys are not eligible for political office. They're not, they can't be magistrates. But of course, they can be emperor because the Roman Empire is this extraordinary autocracy, once beautifully described by the late Sir Arnold Syme as a military autocracy tempered by the legal right to revolution. Because if your Paz coup or your military revolt succeeded, providing the Senate which they always did, then voted you all the powers necessary to be emperor, you had complete legitimacy. You're as legitimate as the man you'd overthrown. And so it is very exceptional for someone that young to become emperor, but it, it's not unheard of. His age is, is one of the lesser things that's extraordinary about him. 
It's what he does that's really extraordinary. And before we go to your year, um, let's just just talk about his his childhood because he spent some of his time in Yorkshire. Is that correct? I think that was that's something that I really wanted to get across in this interview is how much they travelled. I mean, we all know the Roman Empire was a sort of, you know, the Pax Romana was this entity that meant that, you know, it was possible to travel from North Africa to the north of England. But it still does seem um, extraordinary that this boy spent his childhood effectively on the road, travelling such enormous distances from Syria to Yorkshire. It's quite, I mean, it's still a big journey today. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, he's... All too often in popular history, when it's described at all, described as this sort of Syrian boy from Syria, um, which he clearly was from a Syrian family, and his family's hometown was the town of Amisa, modern Homs. But he himself um, was almost certainly born in Rome. We know his mother was in Rome in the year of his birth, AD 204. He came from a Syrian family who had Roman citizenship and for generations. They're members of the elite, they have equestrian or senatorial status, the two highest statuses in the empire. And people of that status did travel an awful lot on government service. So, yes, it was one of the most extraordinary things I found out when researching the book. I knew he'd been born in Rome. Um, if I'm right, that, which was the standard practice, that his mother and he would have accompanied his father on, a, on his post in government service... Yeah, he spent um, four years from the ages of four to eight growing up in Ibarakum in York, which is not exactly what you expect <laughs> of a Syrian boy. And then he would probably have gone back to Rome and then to Numidia in North Africa uh, and then back to Rome again and then finally to the east, to Syria, to his family's hometown of Amisa, where we'll find him in, in the first scene I've picked. Well, I think let's go to your year now. And we have to we have to admit that you're actually not choosing one year. You are cheating, but we are allowing it because um, it was a long, long time ago. And it's such an amazing story. We have to be able to focus on these three separate dates, which actually happened in over the spread of four years, because that was his um, the four years of Heliogabalus's reign. So tell us which just tell us which are your years. Which spread do you want to go to? I Well, I want to start in AD 218. And then we'll jump to Midsummer's Day 220. And then we'll jump to dawn, the 13th of March, um, AD 222. Brilliant. OK, well, let's start um, in 218. And can you set the scene for us? Who is the emperor? What is the political situation? What is going on um, in general uh, in the background? Well, in the background, Rome is probably at the height of its power. Um, it's been a very stable empire for the previous two and a half centuries. It stretches from, in modern terms, from lowland Scotland in the north to the Atlas Mountains in the south, from the Atlantic coast of Portugal to the Euphrates River in Iraq. It's got a population of between 50 and 60 million. And there's been a fairly stable dynasty on the throne since 193 AD until the previous year, when the Emperor Caracalla was murdered and his Praetorian prefect, his right-hand man, had usurped the throne, a man called Macrinus. And that is the immediate background to the night of the 15th of May, uh, the Ides of May, indeed, AD 218, when we start. Heliogabalus is in Syria. How important was Rome? If you were going to rule and be the emperor, how much time did you need to spend in Rome? And how important was Rome at that point? It's vital that you get to Rome after you've been proclaimed so the Senate can vote you the two powers that every emperor relies on. Um, the Maius Imperium, which is overriding military authority, and the tribunician power, which allows you to make law and actually, in reality, frees you, the emperor, from the law. Once you've got to Rome, or once the senate has voted you these powers, it's getting gradually less important to actually physically be in Rome all the time. Because one of the interesting things about this young man, youth's reign, AD 218 to 222, is it's just on the cusp 
Rome still looks stable, but within a generation it's going to descend into what we call the third century crisis, into absolute chaos. And when the chaos comes, emperors very seldom have the time to be in Rome at all, which is one of the things that always interested me about Heliogabalus is that it's sort of on the cusp, probably the last or the penultimate reign, where things outwardly at least appear normal. Do you think he helped that process on its, on its way, accelerated that process? I think it's possible he did, and in, in, in various ways. He was lucky and there were no major foreign invasions. I don't think he'd have lasted four years had there been. But I think, yes, yeah, something we'll come to in our second scene. Um, without further ado, let's go to uh, your first scene and meet Heliogabalus at one of the most important moments of his life. Yes, it's the night of the 15th of May, um, AD 218, and a very small group of people steals out of the city of Emesa, modern Homs. It's a remarkably unimpressive small group. Um, it's headed by Heliogabalus' grandmother, elderly woman called Julia Miser. She has, according to our sources with her, only a handful of soldiers, um, a few ex-slaves of hers, a few local town councillors and some members of her family. One member of her family is the 14-year-old Heliogabalus, who has just been told that he's not, as he's always thought, the son of a Syrian government official. His grandmother has just told him he was actually the illegitimate son of the Emperor Caracalla, and he's been taken out from Emesa on this very sort of terrifying journey of about 25 miles across country to the nearest legionary base, which was a place called Raphanei, which was the fortress of the third legion, Gallica. And he's actually dressed in the clothes of the dead emperor, who was in reality his cousin, whether he was really Caracalla's illegitimate son or not, no one knows, it's highly unlikely, it's probably just a political claim. And so we have this tiny ragtag group sneaking out in the darkness from Emesa. The first thing they would have encountered would have been the necropolis, which is all Roman towns in the empire. And the cemeteries are outside the town. So they're remarkably supernatural places, unsurprisingly. The, the barrier between the mortal world and the underworld is thought to be very thin there. Um, they're also remarkably disreputable places. We have various anecdotes that down on their luck prostitutes, used um, abandoned tombs as their workplace, as sex workers. And so they sneak out into the countryside, which in itself is a terrifying thing, because the Roman elite are really an urban elite, and the countryside outside pastoral poetry is something you rush through, because at best it's full of boorish people um, who are not like you and you probably can't understand their accents. And at worst, you just disappear because it's full of brigands. Um, across the empire, we have lots of tombstones, with just the words, Interfectus a latronibus, killed by brigands. So the 14-year-old boy is taken off on this terrifying nighttime journey to the army fortress. He must know, as everyone in the group knows, that if the rebellion doesn't succeed, they're all dead. Um, he clearly has no choice in this. And presumably is something of a personality crisis here and that he's just discovered his father wasn't his father he was actually someone else's father with a much more dangerous inheritance the journey passes as far as we know quietly they reach the camp uh, of the legion at Raphanea and the gates are shut which must have been a terrifying moment for everyone concerned the gates then open they're admitted and the rest of the night is spent in essentially negotiating and bargaining with the officers of the legion, will they acclaim this boy as a new emperor? And at dawn, just as the sun rises, they do. And Julian Miser has succeeded in the first step. She's put a grandson on the throne. The odds are still totally against this revolt succeeding. They have one legion on side. Uh, the empire has about 30 at this point. And the emperor Macrinus hears of this revolt, but he treats it as child's play. As little more than, than a mutiny. Uh, he doesn't react quickly enough. Where is he? Do, does anyone know where he is? I mean, how do they even get... That's another thing I was thinking. If you are running this empire and you're travelling around all the time, 
communication would have taken weeks, wouldn't it, between different places? It would have taken a long time. The, the Empire did have a thing called the Cursus Publicus, the public post, which is best thought of like a highly organised Pony Express. The average uh, mileage per day for a message is about 60 miles. In emergencies, as this would be, it goes up to about 150. We know that Macronus was in Antioch, which is about 120-odd miles away to the north. He, he doesn't react quickly, and that's his problem, because he leaves it to one of his officers, Praetorian Prefect, to try and crush this, what he sees as minor revolt, because his diary says that Macronus thought it was mere child's play. The Praetorian Prefect gathers together an ad hoc force, besieges the third Gallic Legion in its camp at Raphanei, but fails to take it. The besiegers go over to Heliogabalus after we're told Heliogabalus makes a speech to them from the walls of the camp. Why do you fight against me, the son of your great benefactor, the Emperor Caracalla? And helpfully, large purses of money are waved at the troops outside to encourage them to come over. So the revolt begins to gather momentum. It then manages to win over another legion at a place called Apamea, which is um, a few miles north of Raphanei. They now have two legions on site, but they're still vastly outnumbered. The whole revolt now depends on speed. They have to get to Macrinus and defeat him at Antioch before he can summon reinforcements from the rest of the empire. And they do. They they march north. Actually, they march northeast. The most direct route isn't a good route, route for armies. It, it's or was in Roman times very marshy. When I was writing the book, I wanted to go there because I always believed that autopsy, in the sense of actually seeing things yourself, boots on the ground, is best. Unfortunately, it was in Idlib province, which was the last stronghold of ISIS during the <laughs> Syrian civil war, and I figured that um, a passing Oxford historian turning up might be killed. So I didn't manage to revisit it. But um, Heliogabalus' army, instead of taking the direct and marshy route, swings away to the northeast. Macrinus has time to gather what forces he can, principally the Praetorian Guard. And the climactic battle is fought at a village called Imai, which is about 24 miles from Antioch. And against all the odds, Heliogabalus wins. And we're told he wins because Macrinus loses his nerve. Um, the battle hangs in the balance. And Macrinus runs away. His army deserts to Heliogabalus. And from then on, um, there's a lot of mopping up to do. He, Macrinus has to be caught and executed. There are various minor revolts. But from that moment on, which is actually the, I think, 8th of June, AD 218, Heliogabalus is now Emperor of Rome and really without rivals. And that is when... The rest of his extraordinary story. Do you begins. think Macrinus was not a good emperor and there was already a general feeling of discontent with his reign in order for that to happen? Or... Oh, absolutely. Um, Macrinus, Macrinus has various things against him. He's a usurper, he's not part of the dynasty, and especially the army are very keen on dynastic succession. He's also not a soldier. His background is as a lawyer. And... In Bocasius Dio, betraying the sort of very pervasive racist racism of the Greco-Roman elite, puts it, a lot of the problem down to Macrinus actually being Moorish. He's from North Africa. And Cassius Dio says that this accounts for an awful lot because uh, Macrinus is a coward because of his ethnic heritage. And that's why he runs away. He 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 just hasn't got the right stuff to be emperor. Probably more likely that he didn't have complete faith in his right to be emperor rather than being a coward. Is that not possible? The man that he had supplanted, Caracalla, was an absolute favourite with the army. Yeah. And rumours were circulating that Macrinus had been implicated in the assassination of Caracalla. So Macronus is leading an army that he suspects actually is going to turn against him at any moment. And when they start wavering at the Battle of M.I., he just cuts and runs. He tries, interestingly enough, to... He, he disguises himself. Um, and the Roman upper classes are incredibly bad at pretending to be lower class. 
They're always betrayed by their accent and manners. They're just not really very good. He gets as far as the Bosphorus and he tries to cross to Europe, but he's run out of food and money. So in a typically Roman upper-class way, he just sends a, a slave to ask um, another upper-class acquaintance to, to send him some money, which rather blows his cover as a, sort of a, a private soldier or whatever he's pretending to be. Of the many extravagant stories told about Rome and its emperors, the short life of Heliogabalus has provided some of the most lurid tales, inspiring everything from Victorian paintings to the works of Gilbert and Sullivan. If you're interested in learning more about this period of Roman history, why not join the tour of Imperial Rome, which our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, are running next autumn. In the company of an expert Roman historian, the itinerary takes in the key monuments for which the Eternal City is rightly famous, alongside a visit to the astonishingly well-preserved city of Ostia and to Hadrian's Villa at Tivoli. Ace have over 60 years of experience in group travel and recently won gold at the British Travel Awards in the Arts and Culture category. To find out more or to request a brochure, you can visit their website at www aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223 841055 and then that's the end of him well let's go to your second scene which is midsummer um we're right in the middle of heliogabalus's reign what craziness is taking place it's dawn on midsummer day which is June the 21st, AD 220, and an extraordinary procession is leaving the temple of the god Elagabal. Um, this is a temple that Heligabalus has had built on the Palatine Hill in Rome. The god Elagabal is his ancestral god from Emesa. Heligabalus has taken the god with him from Emesa all the way to Rome. The god is represented on earth by a huge black conical stone and Heliogabalus before he became emperor had been appointed the chief priest of the god Elagabal. Um, I argue that in the book Man Emperor that he had undergone a genuine religious conversion. He's become absolutely fanatical about this god. Anyway the procession snakes out of the temple which is just above the Arch of Titus on the standard walk up to the Palatine in Rome. It's now an overgrown garden, but they came out of there and they turned right. And at the front of the procession were units of the Roman army wearing ceremonial dress, carrying their standards, their battle honours. They're followed by images of all the traditional gods of Rome with um, dedications from their temples that are carried. And then we come to the emperor and the god. Now, the god, the black stone, is in a chariot. It's pulled by four white horses. The emperor is dressed as a Syrian priest, and he's leading the horses. He's running backwards in front of them with either elbow supported by a guardsman so he doesn't trip up. And um, the, the chariot is followed by a procession of Eastern priests playing, according to our ancient Greek sources, wild and barbaric music. Now, this is an extraordinary procession. It comes down from the Palatine. It reaches the Arch of Titus, and it turns right onto the Sacred Way. And it sets off uh, to the suburbs of Rome, where Heliogabalus has had another huge temple to his god built. And this is a very symbolic moment for him. It's symbolising the power of his new god in Rome. It's an incredibly bad bit of political theatre for the native indigenous Romans because they look at this procession and they see a parody of a Roman triumph, the sort of triumph that a general or an emperor holds when he's conquered a foreign people. So in the chariot should be the emperor. The emperor shouldn't be running in front of it backwards wearing foreign clothing. In a triumph... The army goes first, as it does in this procession, but what follows it would, should be captives, barbarians, and the booty taken in the campaign. 
What follows in this procession instead are the images of the traditional gods of Rome. It's as if they've been captured in a military campaign and are now being paraded in a triumph through the streets of Rome and they've been captured by Elagabal, the black stone, and his emperor who worships him. And even the route taken, once it hits the sacred way at the Arch of Titus, is the direct opposite route from the route a traditional Roman triumph should take. It's an incredibly emotive act of religious and political theatre. And it chimes in with the fact that Heliogabalus had issued an order that henceforth every magistrate and public official taking any public oath should not invoke Jupiter Optimus Maximus, the traditional king of the gods, head of the pantheon first. Instead, they should always invoke Elagabal, the god from Emesa. And it's this attempt to dethrone Jupiter and put his own god at the head of the Roman pantheon that is probably the key to understanding this absolutely extraordinary reign. Do you think he that was all done on purpose? I do think it was done on purpose. I think it... So it wasn't just a, a PR disaster where no one had thought it through. It was actually symbolically... I think it's a PR disaster which he has thought through and thought through wrongly. And we know that his grandmother advised him to dial back on his religion and he wouldn't. He went the exact opposite way. And I, I don't think we can underestimate how big a... PR disaster it is because any traditional right-thinking Roman uh, knows that the whole salus, the safety or health of the Roman Empire, completely depends on the Pax Deorum, which usually translated as peace with the gods, better probably the pact with the gods. If the Romans do right by the traditional gods, the traditional gods will do right by Rome. And dethroning Jupiter and replacing him with a large black stone from Emesa, it could not be any how could you do worse by the traditional gods and i think his religious innovations heliogabalus actually poses an almost existential threat in the minds of traditional romans to the very existence of the roman empire yeah which was very intertwined with their own pantheon of gods and i think what well, it something that is important to bear in mind is that um heliogabalus's god was very local wasn't it and a lot of pagan gods were local to a certain town or an area. And then there were the Roman gods that were more universal. Is that correct? Absolutely. And if we explore inscriptions that mention the god Elagabal before the reign of Heliogabalus, um, with just one single exception, every single one is set up by someone who came from the town of Emesa. This wasn't a god that had big public recognition at all. He is a very local god. Um, we can, I think we can confidently say that most people in Rome, most people in the empire, had never heard of this god. I mean, it was a complete bolt from the blue. Who is this strange god that suddenly moved into Rome and the emperor is now insisting we all invoke before anyone else? Mm. Um, but this was obviously just one in a catalogue of terrible things <laughs> that Heliogabalus did. And... Let's talk a bit more about the other things he did now and and whether or not we can believe them. But can we start with the fact that he married five times in five, was it five times in four years, which is impressive. Uh, And one of the women he married was a Vestal Virgin, which I imagine would tie in with this idea that he wasn't respecting Roman traditions and especially Roman religious traditions because Vestal Virgins, as the name suggests, was supposed to remain celibate. Absolutely. Yes, it ties in the two main things of his reign, the things he devotes most of his energies to, which are religion and sex. And these are the two things that really upset everyone. He does other things to upset people, like squander vast sums of money, um, kill lots of the upper classes on trumped-up or ludicrous charges, and he even actually kills his own tutor, who he'd thought of appointing as his heir with his own hand. But yes, he... His marriages are very bizarre. Um, He marries at least four times, possibly as many as seven in four years, which is a far higher rate of serial monogamy than any other emperor. And, of course, each marriage costs a fortune to the taxpayer. And as you rightly say, he twice marries the same woman who's a Vestal Virgin. 
And again, this is a massive threat to Rome. The Vestals tend the sacred half-fire of Rome. Uh, they have to be celibate for 30 years. And they're allowed to stop being a Vestal Virgin after 30 years. But interestingly, most of them seem to carry on for life. And the penalty for a Vestal Virgin um, who has sex with a man is to be buried alive. And the man she's had sex with traditionally should be executed in an incredibly cruel public way. And here's the emperor marrying a Vestal Virgin twice. It, it's yet another, it's doubling down on his religious um, revolution. He is said to have claimed that he'd married her, what well, one source says, he did it for love, to prove his man, manly um, lust. Another source says he did it so that the high priest himself and the high priestess, her, could produce godlike children, which is probably given the complete religious, religion is permeating almost everything he does, is a probably a more realistic interpretation. Did he have any children? He didn't, no, but he confidently expected to. <laughs> he, clay, he claimed uh, shortly before his death that he, um, by the following year he would have a child. Which leads on to the whole sex thing, which um, incredibly offends traditional conservative morality in Rome. It's not just that he marries oh, between four and seven women, one of whom is a Vestal Virgin. He also marries a man and he takes the role of the bride. Um, it's not completely unheard of. The Emperor Nero had done something similar. Um, transgressive marriages were... Popular is putting it to too high, but were known amongst the Roman elite. Presumably there's a sort of sexual thrill in the very transgressive nature of the act. He marries a charioteer called Horacles, who caught his attention by crashing his chariot and falling out of it. His helmet fell off and tumbling blonde hair caught the eye of the emperor. The emperor went against traditional Roman morality by openly flaunting his enjoyment of the passive role in male-male sex. Um, and this opens up the whole area of Roman sexuality. Our modern labels or categories, heterosexual, homosexual, don't really fit. Um, there's no Latin or Greek word that would translate either anywhere near directly. Uh, it really mattered less, seemingly, if you're a member of the Roman elite and you're male, the gender of the people you like to have sex with, it was much more your role, whether it was active or passive. Being active, good, very manly. Being passive, very bad in Roman eyes. And here is an emperor who's openly proclaiming that he enjoys the passive role in male-male sex. And again, this was deeply shocking to conservative Roman opinion. I'm not sure it was shocking to everyone. I mean, there are hints of evidence here or there that some of his subjects may have responded positively to this, but they're very fragmentary. The vast majority, as it were, the moral majority of ancient Rome would have been absolutely appalled by this behaviour and, and found it absolutely bizarre, as do, interestingly enough, most modern scholars who desperately try and claim it's part of his religion which um, there is no evidence for whatsoever that the worship of Elegaval involved any sexual content whatsoever, heterosexual, homosexual, or any other. Um, but it's interesting that scholars rush to sort of come up with a rational explanation for what I think is clearly a very personal choice of the young Heliogabalus. Yeah, but there again, you know, what we began talking about, uh, your your own perspective, you can't ever escape your own the world that you grow up in, even if you're looking back in history, can you? The, your, the, the things that affect the way you think about morality. and um, Do you think that it was partly his promiscuity that was a problem? The fact that he had sex with lots of people. He was also rumoured to have been a male prostitute, wasn't he? Do you think that that was problematic? For I think it was massively problematic. And I, th I think it was sort of especially problematic, problematic with all sectors of, of Roman society, but possibly especially with the army, who they want, they'd, they'd gone over to his side because it was claimed he was uh, the Emperor Caracalla's illegitimate son. Caracalla was, you know, had a buzz cut, had a stubbly military beard, 
He ate porridge with them sitting on the ground. He carried the standards. They wanted a, another tough guy like um, Heliogabalus' supposed father. But what they got is this extraordinary youth wearing Syrian costume, openly marrying men, flaunting his, for Roman times, deviant sexuality. And this is not what they wanted at all. And he also completely ignores the army. The army that brought him to power. Once he's in power in Rome, we only ever hear of him going to speak to them when he's forced to. He has no interest and it's very short-sighted because of all the groups. There are various groups you don't want to upset as emperor. Uh, the Senate, because they can kill you. The palace staff, because they can kill you. Uh, the plebs of Rome, because they can riot a lot. They won't succeed in killing you, but they can destabilise your reign. And above all, the army, who can kill you. Uh, and it seems that Heliogabalus almost sets out to alienate all four groups as far as possible, because his role is totally focused on being a priest of Elagabal, of this... Weird Syrian god. Is that what you... So, thinking about him now, just as a person, let's just try and imagine what he was like, what drove him. What Do you think it was this religious faith that drove him? And, and, and I mean, do you think he was possibly had mental health problems? What do you think... What can explain the way that he behaved? Do you, Can you come up with any kind of suggestions? Well, contemporaries do straightforwardly claim he was mad, that he was insane. I think it's much more likely that it's down to religion and a profound conversion. Uh, he seems... It's interesting that he's... When he's appointed the chief priest of Elagabal just before the revolt that brings him to power, he's the exact, almost exactly the same age and from the same cultural Near Eastern background as the prophet Mani, who also undergoes a profound religious conversion and creates Manichaeism um, about a generation later. I think religion is the key to explaining Heliogabalus's personality. That and the fact he did like a big party and he did like a lot of promiscuous things. Well, and also he was a 14-year-old boy. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that they're all like that, but I don't know many 14-year-olds, boys or girls actually, who would have the maturity and the you know, if they were given power like that, that it might not go to their head and make them a bit crazy. Exactly. Well, if you if you make a 14-year-old God's vice regent on earth and above the law, and mm. um, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely, he's not the only example of that in history, that's for sure. Before we go on to your third scene, we have to just talk about the banquet. There's this painting, which I'm hoping we're going to have to be able to have a picture of on the website. Tell us that story quickly, because that's very weird. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's, um, the painting is The Roses of Heliogabalus um, by Sir Lawrence Armitadema, Victorian painter, and it features Heliogabalus having dinner on high table with uh, several other people, one, two, three, four, five other people, and they're looking down at the other guests being smothered with rose petals, and in fact being smothered to death. Um, it's, it's interesting that the, the painting is the filter through which all modern un, sort of understandings of Heliogabalus are filtered. Um, and he, he's largely written out of history. He, he just survived. He pops up here and there. Some of the wilder fringes of the LBGQ plus community have elevated him into a queer icon or a trans woman. Um, he features, weirdly enough, in the publicity of certain fashion houses. Um, he pops up here and there, and it's always through this painting that Alma Tadema made in the 1880s. The story itself, has it's a multi-layered fiction. Um, the story of Heliogabalus smothering his dinner guest to death with rose petals is found in a source called the Augustan History, which is written about 200 years, nearly 200 years after Heliogabalus was dead. The source is a fascinating one, which is actually an ancient Latin historical novel. Um, the, the Augustan history actually claims he smothers them to death with violets and other flowers. And the Augustan history, in turn, had taken that story from a story in Suetonius about Nero. Mm. Well, there are a lot of parallels, aren't there, between him and Nero, and also Caligula, though the other famous mad emperor. There are indeed. So the Augustan history finds this story about Nero, who just put some perfume and flowers on his dinner guests. The Augustan history adds the lethality of killing them with it 
And then Lawrence Armatadema turns the violets into roses, that very Victorian symbol of sensuality and decadence. Um, and you can see why the painting dominates the modern imagination by Heliogabalus. It somehow sums up everything the Victorians thought about decadence and we still think about Roman decadence. And, and, and the idea that you could be so decadent that it would kill you, that there's something very um, compelling in that idea, isn't there? You could be kill, killed by something as beautiful as rose petals. I think there's something very compelling in, in the way the people who are being killed, um, who are all women, interestingly, don't seem to mind. They, if anything, they seem unmoved by the fact they're, they're, they're being smothered to death. And Presumably you've become so decadent that any sensual experience, even being smothered to death by rose petals, <laughs> well, yeah. is almost a bore. <laughs> or maybe just a good way to go, better than being crucified or stabbed or poisoned, I don't know. Let's go on to your third scene now, which is um, the end the end of Heliogabalus's life and his reign, March the 12th, 222. Absolutely, it's dawn on that day. The day before, um, the Praetorian Guard demanded that Heliogabalus appear in their camp, which is in, still there, you can still go and see it, on the north of Rome, and appear with his cousin, uh, and who will go on to be the Emperor Alexander Severus, who's a boy about three or four years younger than Heliogabalus. And uh, when they arrived the evening before in the Praetorian camp, Heliogabalus was infuriated that the Praetorians cheered loudly Alexander, his cousin, and largely ignored him. They received him in silence. Heliogabalus has spent the night in the chapel of the army camp, absolutely working himself up into a fury. And at dawn, he storms out of the chapel and he starts ordering the arrests of the Praetorian guardsmen he considers the ringleaders of the disrespect of the day before. Initially, it goes well. They are arrested, but then it all unravels. The other Praetorians go and rescue their comrades-in-arms who've been arrested. At some point, Heliogabalus realises what's happening and that, if anything, he's a prisoner in the camp. Not everyone has turned against him yet, we can work this out because unknown people hide him in a large wooden chest to try and smuggle him out of the camp to safety. And unfortunately, the, the bumping, jolting, short, dark journey ends at the gate where the chest is opened, Heliogabalus is found. His mother, a woman called Soimias, clings to her son. The Praetorian guard kill both of them. They kill both of them, uh, they strip their corpses naked, they behead them, they mutilate the corpses, and then they drag them with iron hooks through the streets of Rome. Rose petals. Rose petals is definitely a better option to, than that. <laughs> Rose petals would be a much, much more sensual way to go. This whole barbaric scene has been organised once again by Julia Miser. It's been organised by Heliogabalus' grandmother. She has decided that Heliogabalus is, is now, you know, is likely to bring the whole dynasty down with his behaviour. And it takes, just as she put him on the throne, she removes him and replaces him with another grandson. But it takes a certain sort of woman to actually organise and then watch one of your daughters and one of your grandsons being hacked to death, stripped naked, mutilated and dragged through the streets. Um... But it works, and she replaces Heliogabalus with his cousin, Alexander Severus, and he's much more what she wants. He's a docile boy who lasts for 13 years and really seems to leave government in the hands of his mother and grandmother. So the, the grandmother rules. I mean, she's basically in charge. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of... And this is one of the reasons I... I wanted to write his biography. Well, I've wanted to write his biography for an awfully long time. I wanted to do it for my doctorate a long time ago, but I was told biographies weren't suitable for a doctoral thesis. And at the time, yeah, I just wanted to be his Suetonius and write his story. But in the intervening years, I've sort of come to realise that Heliogabalus is a wonderful window through which to view some of the big themes of Roman history. And some of the big themes are important then, and although they've changed, they're still important now. So also religion, when does piety tip over into extremism, um, gender and sexuality, political power, what's an emperor actually 
meant to do. And of course, ethnicity, because one of the reasons that he never is accepted is the fact his Syrian ancestry. But I think he's a wonderful viewpoint. And, and the power of women. Women can't rule directly in Rome, but they can hope to rule through their husbands, sons, or in this case, through their grandsons. And they do. I mean, there's there's many examples of that, aren't there? Absolutely. I, I in, in The Mad Emperor, I assemble a checklist of the number of times his grandmother tries to get Heliogabalus to do something. And she, I mean, she's not dominant. I, I think it's about a 50% hit rate of success for her. But even so, if you can influence the ruler of the known world to do what you want half the time, that is power beyond belief. Because in an autocracy like the Roman Empire, power really wasn't anything to do with status or grand titles. It was much more closeness to the emperor. If you have the emperor's ear, you have power. If you a slave who holds his chamber pot, you're actually much more powerful than a man who's been twice consul, governor of Asia, has great titles. And I, I think that's something also that a lot of modern scholars just tend to forget when they're looking it, at the it, politics of Rome. It's true, though, again, and again, I mean, it's true of the court of Henry VIII, it's true of the court of Louis XIV, it, it, isn't it? It's, it's a, I would, is it possibly a universal truth about power? Is that if you are close to the person, no matter what your own background is, if you are the one there, um, you know, when they're, as you say, holding the chamber pot, on a daily basis, that does have huge influence. Then the emperor, the, the autocrat listens to you and you have huge influence. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I think is very interesting is, which is obviously a very um, big trend, if you want to call it that, in history at the moment, is going back and looking at history through the eyes of women and trying to recover women's stories and really get to the truth of what it was like, you know, the female experience. And I think there's this dichotomy, especially in places like ancient Rome, between, you know, if you read the legislation about what women were allowed to do and their rights and what they could own and couldn't own. And then if you look at individual stories like this woman, there seems to be quite a big dichotomy. And I know she's obviously an extreme example because she's um, extremely noble. She's part of the elite. She's very wealthy. But there is this dichotomy, isn't there, between officially the roles that women were allowed to play and then the roles that they actually played behind the scenes, in the bedroom, wherever it was. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting that I try and investigate where where women could use their influence, what social um, events would they actually have access. And, um, of course, for Heliogabalus, one is religion. His grandmother, although she advises him to... to tone down his religious extremism, she actually would tell participates in the religious rites of his God. Clearly, because this is a moment when she can be close to him and she can talk to him and she can influence him. Well, also, she came from the same place and presumably she believed, you know, she grew up believing in the same God, just in the same way that he did. Absolutely. And we, in fact, have her husband, who's been dead for some years before, before the revolt, and we know that he was a devout follower because we have inscriptions that he left, that he had put up, celebrating this god. So, she, yes, you're right, she comes from the same cultural background. I mean, she also, we're told, went to watch him practising chariot racing. She clearly seized every opportunity to be close to him because, as you say, that's where power is. But also, you could also turn that around and say she's just being a good granny, you know? that's what good grandmothers do they go and watch their grandchildren playing whichever sport they're into she's a tiger granny who's put him on the throne but then has him killed and mutilated yeah well yeah yeah so my question now is why why didn't you write her biography and are you going to or is somebody else going to it sounds like she's right for funnily enough when i um, was thinking about writing the biography of heligabas um my very good friend donna leon the the novelist said, um, sweetie, as she always calls me for some reason, um, well, sweetie, you don't want to write that. You want to write a novel that's through the eyes of Julia Miser, his grandmother. But I actually wanted to... I wanted to explore various big history themes through him. And that does include the political power and role of women, but there were lots of others, so I wanted it very much to be non-fiction, not one of my novels, which um, I also thought I could write during COVID, 
because there were no literary festivals, no face-to-face teaching. Mm. I had forgotten just how much hard work it is writing a... Well, writing any book is incredibly hard work. Writing non-fiction has one time-consuming thing that writing historical fiction doesn't, in that I do the same amount of work, yeah, I discover the modern theories about something, and then for a novel I can just think, well, I think the most plausible is X, so we'll quietly forget about Y and Z. Of course, you can't do that in, in a history book. You have to justify. So, um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't think I'll return and write a novel about Julia Miser, but I think that someone, well, perhaps it would be more interesting if, if a female novelist did it, not me. Yeah, someone should. We should put the call out. When you said what was more difficult about writing nonfiction, I thought you were going to say footnotes for a minute there. This has been such a great conversation. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed finding out all about this remarkable uh, emperor and his even more remarkable grandmother. Uh, thank you very, very much. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Harry Sidebottom the other day about his fascinating book, The Mad Emperor which is an exhilarating romp through one of the weirdest periods in Roman history and will surely restore Heliogabalus to his rightful position in between Nero and Caligula on the craziest emperor of all time charts. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share on your podcast platform and visit our website tttpodcast.com for more information. Wishing you all a very happy new year and see you for more time travels in 2023.